This evening I'd like to talk about both the blessing and the challenge of mindfulness. And mindfulness is the simple and the clear illumination of life. What we do in mindfulness practice is we learn to see deeply to be wholeheartedly present in all moments. We learn to infuse our listening, our feeling, our touch with mindfulness. And this infusion brings with it a very natural sensitivity. We also experience that in the illumination of each moment, in the illumination of life, with mindfulness, that life or our perception of life is also awakened by mindfulness. It is that connection that is forged through mindful attention that brings a depth of appreciation, of immediacy, and vitality on our journey. In the actual application of mindfulness, we learn to attend to that which we would often take for granted. We learn to probe that which we often have assumptions about. We learn to be actually fully awake in even the smallest details of our life, recognizing that it is not the details themselves, but it is the quality of wakefulness that is the home of joy and of richness and of wisdom. As Joseph Campbell once put it, you know, what we seek for in this life is the rapture of feeling fully alive. There is an innate kindness in mindfulness. It doesn't hold any judgments, any comparison. It makes no demands. In mindfulness itself, there isn't actually any success or failure, not really any progress or regression. There is not good or bad or gain or loss or judgment. Instead, within mindfulness itself, there is a remarkable inclusiveness a serenity and equanimity that is really showing us how to find a quality of unshakable balance and sensitivity. There are no conditions in mindfulness. Instead, there is a welcoming of all things. We also see that mindfulness in itself really doesn't concern itself with history. It doesn't matter, actually, what happened in the last moment. It doesn't concern itself with all the moments that have gone by, nor does mindfulness actually concern itself with the future, with all the moments that have yet to come, with the tomorrows that have yet to be lived. Mindfulness instead, its concern is the direct and the immediate experience of the moment that can be embraced fully 
because it is here that we actually learn about healing the past and that we also learn about giving birth to a future which is a little more than just the repetition of the past. Mindfulness also holds within it an innate forgiveness. The moments that we stumble or falter experiences that happen to us all, moments when we lose ourselves. These moments are actually not deemed to be failures or personal judgments. Instead, in the light of mindfulness, they are actually simply moments that we stumble and falter. It's that simple. But we are aware of them. And so being aware of them, there is always that invitation to restore ourselves, to balance, to simplicity, to being present. Mindfulness also holds within it an innate compassion. There is actually nothing too terrible to forgive. Nothing which deserves condemnation, nothing that deserves rejection or denial, or that is too shameful to be with. Certainly we see in mindfulness our capacity for a greater appreciation of the beautiful, the joyful, the delightful in life. But we also see and begin to appreciate that expansiveness and spaciousness that can also embrace those darker places in ourselves, the shadows and the demons. Mindfulness is actually unconditional in its receptivity and willingness to listen. And increasingly, we we come to understand in this practice, as we make a home within that mindful presence, that it is actually an ever-deepening process of acceptance. An acceptance that's not passive or resigned or despairing, but which is very alive and present. Because there are no conditions and nothing that is unworthy of being embraced, We see, actually, too, there is a fearlessness within this practice. That we can be with all things, whatever is illuminated. And that fearlessness that we come to discover within ourselves, which doesn't mean that fear never arises, but it does mean that willingness and steadiness to be with all things. That fearlessness in itself is one of the most profound refuges we can never discover because that's where we actually find balance and calmness and kindness. Now sometimes mindfulness, as we've mentioned many times, is called the practice of recollection. And this practice of recollection is something that is both simple And yet it is extraordinarily profound. On one level, the recollection is just kind of remembering or knowing 
where we are and how we are in each moment. We're gathering together, integrating our body, our minds, our hearts, and the present moment as a unified whole through bringing mindful attention. In that, we are seeking to cultivate a quality of oneness or a, quali a quality of wholeness within each moment. But there's another layer of recollection, too, which is part of mindfulness practice. And that layer is, is perhaps questioning or remembering who it is that we truly are, who we may be, apart from our images and our descriptions and our histories and our definitions, but the simple truth of ourselves in the moment. In that remembering or recollecting, there is also a sense of vision because we are also remembering what is most possible for us and what it is that we deeply value. Mindfulness holds within it this reminder to, to, of what is possible for us to discover in terms of compassion and wisdom and freedom inwardly. Sometimes it is actually really helpful to have that recollection or that remembering really at the forefront of our consciousness. I mean, it is not uncommon, you know, when you practice, that you kind of forget why you're doing it. You know, I mean, it seemed clear before you came. And that when we start practicing, you know, and then you get these variety of mind states and fogginess and chaos and all of these things that can happen, we kind of forget why we're doing it. But we're doing this to remember ourselves and and to remind ourselves of, of how much we value the end of struggle and the end of sorrow of how much we value clarity and intimacy and how deeply embedded those longings are in our hearts and minds and at times how easy they are to forget I think paradoxically, the very kindness of mindfulness is actually also its challenge. Because it's not always easy for us to find that kindness towards ourselves. We see how we can fill the moment and fill our relationship to ourselves and to the moment with so much historical baggage of unnecessary suffering. You know, the judgments that we can bring in, the comparisons, the evaluations, the good and the bad, the better and the worse, this is actually uh, not intrinsic to the practice. It's just good to remember that. This is not intrinsic to mindfulness. This is an extra layer that is born of a certain history that we are adding to the moment. And it's good, it's helpful, it's really helpful to see that it's not intrinsic. 
Because something that is not intrinsic, that is not innate, is also something that we can let go of. Mindfulness actually begins with remembering all of that which we are prone to forget. And as we begin to be mindful, I think simultaneously we begin to realize just how incredibly forgetful we can be. This is not something to condemn or to judge, but as we are aware of how much we are prone to, be, to forget, I think we begin to wake up to the measure of this challenge, to the measure of the challenge of truly being mindful. No doubt you've had quite a close glimpse today of how many countless lost moments can fill our lives as we try to live tomorrow's life today or as we try to relive yesterday's life that we're never actually going to recover but that doesn't stop us trying. Sometimes we become aware of how we we almost seem to see the world through a glaze, you know, of cascading thoughts and interpretations and anxieties and expectations, as if we're a kind of distant or removed specta- spectator, where the world is sort of a backdrop to the busyness of our minds. Sometimes when it's, we see we can get so locked into our internal world, world of dialogues and measuring, it seems that we can feel so separate from just the simple truths of the moment, as if you know, they really don't have much to do with us almost. There's something I came across recently which kind of made me smile. It was a, it's a piece written by Wendell Berry called The Vacation. He says, once there was a man who filmed his vacation. He went flying down the river on his boat with his camera to his eye, making a moving picture of the moving river upon which his sleek boat moved swiftly towards the end of his vacation. He showed his vacation to his camera, preserving it forever, the river, the trees, the sky, the light, the front of his, his, swir- his rushing boat, behind which he stood with his camera, preserving his vacation, even as he was having it. So that after he had had it, he would still have it. <laughs> with a flick of a switch, there it would be, but he would not be in it. <laughs> he would never be in it. Isn't that kind of sometimes how it feels when we kind of think our way through every moment, you know, or judge our way through every moment, or compare our way through every moment? It's like we have it in this kind of frozen image, but somehow it feels like we're not really in it. <clears throat> sometimes I think we begin to, to maybe see that some of our forgetfulness is, seems to be born of a stream of almost relentless 
um, or insistent impulses that surge through our consciousness. It's like we're, we're a captive of our impulses. We try to be present. Everybody, I'm sure, has tried to be present today. And we forget. A moment later, we forget. We fi find ourselves pulled away. We try to be in our bodies. And yet, just in the span of one single step, you know, you lift your foot off the ground with mindfulness, really there in your body. And yet, between that small moment when your foot has lifted off the ground until it settles again, something amazing can happen. We forget. The next moment we wake up or kind of remember where we are, we're drinking a cup of tea in the dining room. And we wonder what happened. Or we've lifted our foot and suddenly we have a whole monologue going about the person who's walking beside us and their walking style. Or speculating about the next sitting. And suddenly we realize we have this kind of blank space, this hole in the tapestry of our life. We breathe in with mindfulness. The outbreath begins. And we're somewhere else. Who won the Oscar for the best actress? What color will we repaint our kitchen? We see ourselves mindfully going towards someone that we've struggled with or argued with in the past, you know, and we have this real clear intention. You know, it's going to be different. We're going to be more kind this time. And suddenly we forget. You know, the words again of blame are flying out of our mouths. And we begin to appreciate, actually, the power of these impulses, the power of our habits, our fixations, our thoughts, our preoccupations to drown our intention to be mindful or present in a sea of confusion or impulse. We are not bad at applied attention. You know, this is actually something we're quite good at. We're actually quite good at getting to the moment. But sustained attention is a fabric of a different measure. <laughs> you know, to actually stay present, this is something different. Intuitively, I, I do believe we all kind of have some sense of the kindness and actually the power of mindfulness. This is actually the home of wonder. It's the home of intimacy. It's the home of joy. And we then are puzzled because, you know, when that intuition is so perhaps clear for us, why do we keep wanting to flee? If mindfulness is so wonderful, why are we so prone to abandon it? It's not only our intuition that perhaps, you know, really confirms to us the, the power of mindfulness. I think directly we know in our own experience that the most rich and deep and alive moments in our lives are those moments when we have actually been wholeheartedly present and intimate 
with what is right before us. When we've been deeply present in the presence of another, when we've listened fully to the wind, when we've felt ourselves in our own bodies, when we've been able to stand firmly in our lives and firmly in the moment, these are the moments of wonder. And yet something keeps happening. You know, this kind of flow of impulse often seems to keep happening to make us forget. There are times, I think, when forgetfulness is actually a kind of a creature or a sort of manifestation of a kind of anxiety impulse. You know, the anxiety impulse that really um, makes us want to all the time make the world familiar and secure and known to us. Almost as if we keep ourselves separate somehow out of fear. Fear of being vulnerable or a fear of being exposed to the unknown. I mean, you've experienced today the chattering mind, you know, the, the background commentator, the, the million and one thoughts, you know, that seem to have no interruption whatsoever. And most of it, of course, is entirely irrelevant. And yet it keeps going, doesn't it? I mean, you're actually trying, you'd love, you know, it's kind of like, you'd love to be able to turn off this background static. And what is the energy, we wonder, that keeps it going? I mean, it's actually somewhat unpleasant, you know, that we have to think something about everything. And it seems that it's rooted, I have a feeling it's rooted in a kind of existential anxiety of wanting to be in control, wanting to have that identity, wanting to make everything familiar, as if we're going to die of wonder or the unknown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a poem I, I came across again, I want to share with you. It says, though the air is full of singing, my head is loud with the labor of words. Though the season is rich with fruit, my tongue hungers for the sweet of speech. Though the beach is golden, I cannot stand beneath it silent, but must say, it is golden. While the leaves stir and fall with a sound that is not a name, it is in the silence that my hope is and my aim. A song whose lines I cannot make or sing. Let me say that the world lives in the death of speech and sings there. I don't, when I read, read that poem, I didn't hear it as an admonishment to have no words or to have no communication but as an invitation to be able somehow to learn how to receive ourselves, the moment to receive our life without interruption and without the filter of the concepts that so much tie the moment to something that we think that we know because we have a word for it. It is an invitation to allow the present and life to unfold. 
You know, in this tradition, the story of Siddhartha leaving the comfort and security of his palace and his identity and his position and to enter into a homeless life of leaning upon nothing is one, as you know, of the most frequently told stories. And it is a story that is often presented as being a kind of model of renunciation that we're encouraged to emulate. And of course, it is a story of remarkable courage and inspiration. But I think that for many of us to understand actually what it means to be at home, to be at home in our life, to be at home in ourselves, to be at home in the moment, that this is actually the most significant of all journeys that we make. And there's a quality of unwise homelessness that we can cultivate. An unwise homelessness, which is really the habit of abandoning the moment. The habit of fleeing from ourselves, the habit of fleeing from our lives into an unwise homelessness, a homelessness of disconnection. I think for many of us on a spiritual path, Learning to forsake the habit of abandonment is actually the greatest of all renunciations. Because that's actually where we learn about being present. And where we learn about being awake and where we can actually discover a quality of wise homelessness, which is about being present, but also about not relying upon all anything that will crumble. Mindfulness illuminates all things. At times that means it also illuminates parts of ourselves that we would perhaps kind of rather not see. It exposes a forgetfulness that may pervade much of our lives, but rather than judge or, or condemn this, we actually see that we have much to learn in the places that we tend to forget. Because we see that sometimes what forgetfulness does is that it it kind of camouflages or conceals some of our demons, you know, our, our latent cravings and aversions and anxieties. And sometimes when forgetfulness seems to conceal all of that, it kind of looks attractive. It's almost as if forgetfulness is is protecting us against ourselves or from a reality which can feel, you know, too harsh or painful to be with. You know, that saying in our culture that ignorance is bliss. I'm not quite sure where that came from. But it was obviously somebody who didn't like reality too much. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, when we don't like reality a great deal, forgetfulness looks kind of good. <laughs> it's actually not bliss. Because actually what we would all, I think, agree on is that bulk of our unhappiness is born of our most least conscious thought speech, and actions. 
So that is actually where the bulk of our unhappiness comes from, is habitual impulse, the places where we are least conscious. We see that those waves of habitual impulse or reaction too often take us places that are far from where we really wish to be. And we see this over and over again in our lives. You know, it's no, it's no great mystery. We'd like to be compassionate, most of us. And then we wonder why we sit around, you know, plotting revenge. You know, we'd like to be patient, most of us. How come we get behind the wheel of our car and this kind of alternative personality takes over? It turns us into a cursing in a vengeful driver. We'd like to be generous, most of us. And then we're puzzled, you know, at these impulses that lead us to reach out and and clutch at things. The Buddha talked about these habitual impulses as being like a person who goes through life carrying their own personal thorn bush, and they keep trampling on the thorns. I think we can see that, that it actually causes much unhappiness in our lives. It is why often practice is really helpful when it's motivated by a treasuring of happiness. It's not about getting rid of things, but actually it's a treasuring of happiness, our capacity for joy, our capacity for happiness. Strangely, you know, mindfulness sometimes seems to cause unhappiness. <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> you know it's, it's why you know, people come on retreats, you know, and it, it, it seems they start to be mindful, and it's not uncommon for people to feel like they were kind of better off <laughs> before they came here, you know. And we don't put this in our advertising, you know, I mean... You could imagine if you got the IMS brochure, you know, and it said, oh, come on, retreat, you know, and, and it re- really experience unhappiness. <laughs> we actually say, you know, this actually practices a path of happiness. But strangely, at times, it can seem to cause us unhappiness. Because, it, and I think that what happens is that when we start to wake up in our life, it kind of exposes some of those gaps that I mentioned last night between who we seem to be in the moment and who we wish ourselves to be. That mindfulness really challenges, actually, our sense of identity and self and and beliefs. And that is its nature is to challenge. Because it brings into consciousness everything that has been unconscious. It brings into the light of awareness everything that has been hiding in the shadows. I mean, of course, you know, it's easy to have romantic images of mindful pra- mindfulness practice, you know, that we're going to come on retreat and we're all going to, you know, jointly descend into realms of rapture and bliss. And it can happen. It can happen. But we don't bypass ourselves on the way. When we are sometimes exposed to ourselves through mindfulness, 
we don't always appreciate that, you know, a part of mindfulness practice is actually intended to disturb us. I mean, it is intended to bring calmness too, you know, and serenity and tranquility. But at the same time, part, part of mindfulness practice is actually intended to unsettle us, not in a negative way, but in a questioning way. In, in probing beneath our appearances, in probing our, our beliefs and our assumptions and our images. It's a gesture of freedom in search of freedom. And this practice, it's not its nature to leave us untouched. You know, as if somehow we have some neat practice over here, but over here we keep ourselves intact. You know, our personalities and our assumptions and our images, that duality doesn't work. You know, actually, mindfulness practice is, it kind of doesn't leave us intact. And that's actually its beauty. I think sometimes there are two pathways that we're familiar pathways that we're often prone to follow when we're faced with the uncomfortable and the disturbing in this life. You know, one is a pathway of restlessness and agitation, and the other is a pathway of numbness. We can see when we're faced with the uncomfortable how agitated we become. You know, the stream of thoughts that suddenly appear for us. And we want, you know, restlessness restlessness does hold a lot of insistence. You know, that urge and that impulse actually to be anywhere but where we are to be with anything but what we're with. You know, and we see that on retreat. You know, we're restless, and when we're sitting, we want to walk. You know, when we walk, we want to sit. You know, when we're eating breakfast, we want to be eating lunch. You know, when we're having this thought, we want to be having another one. You know, it, it, it is like there is no rest, and there is no ease, and the mind is kind of floundering to get away from that which feels painful. And we can see that in that restlessness, that agitation, there is both craving and there is aversion. I mean, certainly anything looks better than where we are, right? When, we're <laughs> when we've got aversion, anything looks better than what we're with. And that's craving too, because we crave and want something other than what is. And so often when we see there's aversion, it's that kind of trigger or that catalyst to start prowling. You know, and I often think of prowling on retreat, you know, because I've done it myself. And I know what it's like to prowl on retreat, you know. You're kind of practicing, but you're prowling, you know. <laughs> I mean, your eyes and your ears are really hungry, you know. You really get your eye on everybody else and everything that's happening around you, you know, anything that might look slightly interesting or exciting or anything basically other than where we are, you know. And so we prowl, you know, the hallways the dining room, the notice board, you know. We're prowling, we're on the prowl. And you can feel it, like there's this big hole inwardly, you know. And you're just looking for something to fill it, you know. And yet it's unfillable, and we know that, and that's so painful, you know. Or or it just makes more restlessness, or we don't want to believe that it's unfillable, so we just try a little bit more, you know. A little more prowling, and then maybe we're really going to get started with this mindfulness stuff, you know. But we can feel that that kind of movement to be elsewhere. 
And it gets so ridiculous too, doesn't it? I mean, because it's not that we prowl outwardly just, we prowl inwardly too, you know. I mean, when you're sitting, you know, and some of the really absolutely ridiculous things we can find ourselves doing, you know, reciting nursery rhymes, you know, singing little songs, you know, counting seconds, you know, surreptitiously watching the second hand on our watch, you know. <laughs> the kind of prowling inwardly of all the fantasies and the daydreams, you know. For what? Clearly, this moment really doesn't feel like enough. Or it doesn't feel a comfortable place to be. But the discomfort is not in the moment. It's how we are being with it. You know, so no matter how much we keep changing the moment, that discomfort is still traveling with us. The other side, you know, or the other response to the uncomfortable when it's not this kind of agitation is often numbness, and this can be an equally familiar impulse to us. You know, it's disturbing. Restlessness gets replaced by dullness or by what we call boredom. That camouflages often camouflages doubt and anxiety. You know, dullness is a fantastic way of camouflaging doubt and anxiety. We switch off. You know, we get trapped in a fog, and yet this too can seem so disturbing to us. I mean, we feel often anxiety about being awake, but culturally too, we have a lot of fear about, um, about being awake. And we have a fear about being bored. I mean, uh, boredom's become one of my themes this year. Times, I think, our unwillingness to be bored is one of the greatest illnesses of our culture. Um, because we're not bored with life, are we? We're bored with ourselves. Um, and so we get propelled into these waves, endless waves of restlessness, Almost as if we fear we're going to disappear in boredom. But who are we in boredom? You know, so we look for almost anything to excite us, to enliven us, to tell us, actually, that we are alive. And I think boredom sometimes reveals how impoverished, how bereft we feel inwardly of richness and how dependent we feel upon fleeting experiences, fleeting sensations and impressions in order to feel alive. You know, I think mindfulness strangely teaches us the wisdom of boredom. In an in, in a English university, recently there was this research project done on children and their relationship to boredom. And perhaps not, dis not surprisingly, they discovered that little boredom is actually does wonders for children. That when children were actually encouraged for a while to stay with boredom, that it was often the beginning of discovering how to fall back upon their own creativity and imagination and inner resources. And I think this actually is, is also true for us, that we learn to pro-boredom, boredom, because that what we are called boredom is actually a disconnection or a surrender of sensitivity, a surrender of connection with the moment. So we learn, actually, to stay with that place. Those words, when we say, I'm bored, perhaps intuiting that that state of mind is actually concealing life. 
You know, there was a Zen teacher once said, you know, if you're bored with something after five minutes, do it for ten. You know, if you're still bored, do it for twenty. Still bored, do it for an hour. In fact, keep doing it until a sense of wonder awakens in you. We see as we practice mindfulness that we are going through so many layers of habit, of doubt, of boredom and anxiety. And we embrace that challenge of returning to ourselves, of no longer being lost. And instead of following the pathway of abandonment, we learn to cultivate not only applied attention, but sustained attention. We learn to withdraw our consent, actually, from the habit of fleeing of learning to treasure the present, to treasure resting in the present, and to forsake the pathways of restlessness and numbness, no matter how compelling they feel. A Chinese teacher once said, you know, when you sit, just sit. When you walk, just walk. But above all, don't wobble. Eh, This is great for this practice. Don't wobble. You know? When you sit, really know what it means to have that dedicated space. When we walk, that we really walk as a dedicated space. Don't wobble. You know, stay steady there. And then there's a wisdom, you know, in not, not making too much of a project of mindfulness or, or turning it into some kind of mission. What we see is we we do need to bring just that calm, sustained effort to cultivate attention, to remind ourselves to be here, to begin again when we forget. But most important, you know, what we're doing here is so simple, is that we're really just showing up for ourselves. And we're just showing up for our life. And we're just showing up for the moment. And I think sometimes this is the only instruction we actually ever need to hear in meditation, to just keep showing up. And it is enough. Sometimes, I, well, once I heard that uh, the practice described as, as packing your bags, but going to the station without them, you know, catching the train and leaving yourself behind. And what we're really learning to to leave behind in this practice is the world of our preferences and our likes and our dislikes and our judgments and anxieties and enter so unconditionally into this moment. Where do we start? We start with our breathing. Why? Not because there's something holy or sacred or special about our breathing, but isn't it true that this is a place in our life where actually we're often quite unconscious? I mean, we don't have to try to breathe, do we? We know how to do it. So it's something we take very much for granted or we have a lot of assumptions about. So we take this one piece of our experience that often we have assumptions about, we take it for granted, and we learn to pay attention. So we learn to breathe with mindfulness. 
Now we are learning to bring that very natural, that very simple process of our life into the light of our attention. And we breathe with mindfulness. And it comes alive for us. We do the same with our bodies. I mean, except when our bodies are in pain or, in, or ill, our bodies too are often something that is just pervaded with images and assumptions and we take them for granted. So we learn actually to turn a different kind of attention to our bodies. We learn to hold them in that light of mindfulness. We're learning to be awake to our bodies. What we are doing within our breathing and within our bodies is actually a training for life. It's a training of taking nothing for granted. A training of learning how, the, uh, learning the kind of alchemy or the magic of bringing sensitivity, of bringing mindfulness, that it actually brings the world to life for us, to be seen in new ways, to be related to it in new ways, to be seen fully and completely. It is the art of silent illumination in which everything does come alive for us. There's a poem I wanted to end with. <clears throat> it says, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower. It's already there in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's not so much to do. Whatever arises in the mind, don't become attached to it. Don't pass judgment. Let the game happen on its own, springing up and falling back without changing anything, and all will vanish and appear without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a rainbow which you run after without ever catching it. It has always been there and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the good and the bad you call experience. They are like rainbows. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. So make use of it. All is yours already. Don't search any further. Don't go into the inextricable jungle looking for the elephant who is already quietly at home. Nothing to do, nothing to force, nothing to want, and everything happens by itself. Could have just a couple of moments quietly together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.